You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So President Grover Cleveland vetoes 584 bills in his two presidencies. Franklin Roosevelt vetoes over 600. But now we are talking about President Obama's sixth or seventh veto of his two-term presidency. What's going on here? Is the veto power shrinking? We're going to look at that. We're also going to look at the name that World War II almost got, which I think will surprise you. And comparing Donald Trump with Huey Long. First, it's the end of the year, and I would like to ask for your help for a couple of reasons. First, the small things like cost for websites. We've improved a website. We really have a premium website that costs per month. Hosting of files cost. Cost for magazine archives and various research materials that enable me to make sure I get everything when I'm looking at a subject. I have those because of the people who have supported my history can beat up your politics in the past, and I appreciate your support. I'd also like to think that my own time is valuable, and I do imagine a future, it's not possible right now, but I imagine a future where I could devote more time to the cast, and that's only going to happen with your support. It'll only make the program better. So if you go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, there's a donate link. Donate $25, and we'll give you a link to the archive to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. And that's going to have most of the programs that we've recorded since 2006. But wait, there's more. If you donate $25 or more, you will get the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics six-pack. What is that? It's six transcripts of the program. It includes the three Umbrella Man casts, Re-examination, rediscovery of Neville Chamberlain and Munich. All three parts, transcripts of those casts. Our cast on the veto from 2007, we're going to talk more about the veto today. This is the cast from 2007, the transcript of that. Transcript of our cast of the same year about the history behind the Brown versus the Board of Education system and its legacy. And our cast on objectivity in the media. You get six transcripts if you donate or more, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You also get the archive. You know, it's the end of the year, and think about it just as you would support, say, your favorite public radio program. If you listen to this, consider donating. Your support helps. In 1887, amidst a drought, farmers unable to grow crops the federal government, the Congress decided that it would subsidize seed so that Texas farmers could reseed their fields. The House was controlled by Democrats. Texas was a Democratic state. They had a Democratic president. That president had carried Texas in the last election. So when they sent the bill, they didn't expect this to come back from the White House, from President Grover Cleveland. 
I return without my approval House Bill Number 10203, entitled An Act to Enable the Commissioner of Agriculture to Make Special Distribution of Seeds in Drought-Stricken Counties of Texas, and Making an Appropriation Therefore. It is represented that a long-continued and extensive drought has existed in certain portions of the state of Texas, resulting in a failure of crops and consequent distress and destitution. Though there's been some difference in statements concerning the extent of the people's needs and localities thus affected, there seems to be no doubt that there has existed a condition calling for relief, and I'm willing to believe that. And yet, I feel obliged to withhold my approval of the plan as proposed by this bill. I can find no warrant for an, a, such an appropriation in the Constitution, and I do not believe that the power and the duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individual suffering, which is no manner properly related to the public service or benefit. Well, that was the veto message issued in Cleveland's first term, and it certainly didn't endear him to his own party, nor did many of his frugal statements or refusal to appoint some of the people that the Congress wanted and some of the people that the Democratic Party, party power players wanted. He'd win Texas in his next election, but enthusiasm for him among the Democratic Party was low, and he would lose New York. He'd get back to the White House in four years. And in both of his presidencies, because they're considered two presidencies with Benjamin Harrison in between, Grover Cleveland would veto over 583 other bills besides his Texas seed bill. No president in modern times has come anywhere near that. Coolidge and Truman were a bit veto-happy, and Franklin Roosevelt only beat out Cleveland in his veto count because, well, he served for 12 years instead of eight. So you can ask, why has the use of presidential vetoes declined so dramatically? But you could also ask another question. Why is it going back to the way it used to be? See, George Washington, first president, vetoes just two bills. One was a representation bill that he felt, first of all, was written badly, and second of all, wasn't fair to all the regions in the country, maybe favored the North. Then there was a bill that he felt improperly treated the U.S. cavalry. Those were the two he vetoed. And his successors, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, didn't even join him in that low veto count. They both vetoed zero bills. Yet, it starts to bubble up throughout history. Madison's seven vetoes. Andrew Jackson, 12, Grant, 93, to a peak of Franklin Roosevelt and his 635 vetoes. What's going on here? Because in recent times, we're not seeing that anymore. Clinton, during his eight years, vetoes 37 bills. And he has an opposition Congress during most of that time. George W. Bush has a friendly Congress during most of his time. Vetoes just 12. Obama Five so far, probably a few more coming, but clock's running out and there's, there's not enough time to get anywhere near any of the previous incumbents. So what's going on? I wanted to examine a bit what was going on with these vetoes of Grover Cleveland, and I looked at Franklin Roosevelt, who does have the highest veto count, at 635. You can look at them bill by bill, and since I had nothing else to do, I decided to do that. Look at his vetoes and also some of Grover Cleveland's. It's evident looking at it that the veto has declined in usage, but not as much as these high numbers might seem to demonstrate. The reality is that Franklin Roosevelt probably only had a few dozen real vetoes, and Cleveland as well, the kind of vetoes that might make news. 
Well, he was more likely to veto than Barack Obama or George W. Bush, who have really driven the vetoes down. Franklin Roosevelt was not that much more veto-happy than most presidents. A lot of his vetoes could be explained by the large number of nonsense and individual relief bills as a result of the Great Depression, such as these. To provide for the payment of damages to certain residents of Alaska caused by the reason of extending the boundaries of Mount McKinley National Park. To authorize the payment of expenses of delegates to the Yakima Confederated Tribes of Indians while on a mission to represent such tribes before Congress and the executive departments at the seat of government. To permit postmasters to act as dispersing officers for the payment of traveling expenses of officers and employees of the Postal Service. Gee, can't imagine how that one would get out of control. To authorize the coinage of a 50-cent piece in commemoration of the boyhood home of General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Those are the types of bills that might reach the federal government during Grover Cleveland or even Franklin Roosevelt's time. But even more, hundreds of these were individual people or individual companies making claims to the federal government, and they were getting to the White House in Cleveland or Roosevelt's term. Here's some that FDR faced. For the relief of John W. Beck, for the relief of Thomas M. Barden, for the relief of Michael Illitz, for the relief of Richard Chavez, for the relief of Thomas G. Carlin, for the relief of Sanford and Brooks Company. In many cases, Roosevelt didn't actually veto the bills, but pocket vetoed the bills, Cleveland as well, not acting on it. Because if the president does not act on a bill while Congress has adjourned, it is automatically vetoed without him taking any action at all. Some of this is probably all planned, or at least in Congress it's all planned. Congressmen, probably to help a constituent and blame the lack of action on that president, passed many of these kind of bills, then adjourned knowing that the president wasn't going to take action on them. No one really wanted the bills passed, or at least no one in the majority of Congress really wanted to issue those funds. These type of individual relief bills were still being vetoed at the time of Ford and even Reagan, but just a few of them. Lately, though, if these type of bills exist, it's not getting through congressional committee. So if you look at things since FDR, I think we've been seeing less of that veto power. Truman, 250 vetoes. Eisenhower, 181. Time you get to Nixon, 43. Ford vetoes, 66. And that was just in two years. And by the way, that was considered high. And there was a big issue made of it in the 1976 election. Carter, probably having just criticized Ford for doing that, doesn't issue more than 31 himself. Reagan issues 78, but that's 39 per term. George H.W. Bush, 44. Clinton, 37. G.W. Bush, 12. And Obama, 5 so far. So there's then a trend towards less vetoing, even when those nuisance bills are concerned. I think that's the major factor from some of the 19th century and early 20th century presidents. The president's legislative system is more complicated now. Presidents are much more involved in budgeting, much more involved in legislation, their own lobbyist on the Hill. The Congress is also much more complex in how they deal with the president, and only for certain showy bills, such as the Planned Parenthood bill coming up or the repeal of Obamacare coming up, where the Congress is essentially saying, we know he's going to veto and we don't care. Those are the only things that are going to find the White House. I also think there's a change in how the presidency works and how the president views vetoes 
than would have happened in Grover Cleveland's day. Grover Cleveland was getting a lot of accolades in the press for vetoing. It was seen as like a budget cutter. I think it's highly risky in today's times to veto because there's a different conception of presidential power that a good president works with Congress successfully. That's one of the ways that historians and even commentators and even the average person views with how a president's doing, right? We didn't see Carter as doing that well because he couldn't get along with Congress. Reagan did great because he got his bills through Congress. So if you're vetoing things, it may be that you're not working well with Congress. And also, the threat of override is present. And an override simply kills the president's clout. Nobody running a White House these days, and there's people running White Houses in a way that wouldn't have been present in the 19th, early 20th century, wants to see the president lose that battle. Another reason is the increased use of signing statements by presidents. So it's particularly George W. Bush and President Obama, who's really used them maybe a little less frequently, but in the same way. So the president will indicate how he's going to enforce the law and can kind of shape the law through his signing statement. That might mean in a few situations he doesn't feel like he needs to veto. It's very controversial. It's up to the Congress to continue oversight of the executive branch. So few less vetoes, not as many as we think. The veto hasn't gone away, and it's still very much a factor in American law and politics. I'm reminded of a story I was told by an older man, 81 at the time, recently passed who had fought in the Battle of the Bulge. I asked him about it. You know, what was it like? And he told me, you know, they told me later that it was the Battle of the Bulge. I just knew we were going to go out and fight the Germans. And I believe he might have said something about it being like brutal fighting, particularly dark, particularly bad weather, particularly hard that day, hard to see. The name, the Battle of the Bulge, came later. And you wonder, how often are battles, or even wars, referred to by the names they'll later be known as while they're being fought? I was asked this question on Quora, which is a website where I answer questions. Uh, for example, World War I wasn't known as World War I while it was being fought. When countries fighting a war, it's not clear it's going to be a quick action or an all-out conflict. And I think the historical names flatten out controversy to a degree, and there's some degree of interpretation in the names. They are not apolitical. Look at World War I. The World War is how it was being known in the 30s, in the time in between World War I and World War II, at least in the United States might be called the Great War as well, and particularly on the British side. In America, it was the World War. You see that in congressional legislation, in the media, and other places. Obviously, they didn't call it World War I because they didn't know another one was coming. It seems very benign, and largely it is, but it does have a teeny agenda in it. 
World war implies some level of necessary purpose. If it was called the German war, it might have a little more of a negative taint and maybe make the purpose not seem so grand. Civil war, for instance, implies that both sides have some amount of justification versus rebellion on one side versus invasion on the other. It's a civil war. It's between two people in a common country. And the Civil War is used during the Civil War. Of course, it's used in Lincoln's final address, The Malice Towards None. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending Civil War. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. It will be called the Civil War thereafter, but it had a variety of names and statues and other appellations. Uh, War Between the States, War of the Recent Rebellion, War of Northern Aggression, and the like. When World War II came, Roosevelt wanted the term survival war for the name of World War II. Survival war. Survival war would help to justify the effort, he thought, although the criticism was that some found it to be too pessimistic. Well, gosh, if it's a survival war, are we going to win this thing? While Roosevelt may have helped to popularize the name uh, World War II, he wasn't entirely satisfied with it. In 1942, he asked the public to propose alternate appellations, and over the next few weeks, the War Department received 15,000 submissions, ranging from the War for Civilization to the War Against Enslavement. Neither of these, nor Roosevelt's own choice, the Survival War had any staying power. So World War II it was. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like Democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you. And what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, you know, any thought that uh, Donald Trump would be gone by Labor Day, I think, has gone out the window. Obviously, at this time, Donald Trump will be a competitor in Iowa 
in New Hampshire and at least in the early primaries and maybe throughout the contest next year. Many people, Pat Buchanan and others, have previously compared Huey Long to Donald Trump, and I don't think I was ready to take that comparison on, but given Trump's recent fairly outrageous statement, you know, banning all Muslims from entering the United States, I think I should take it on. Here's what Richard D. White, the author of Kingfish, The Reign of Huey P. Long, told the Boston Globe. Long spoke directly to the people, and that is Donald Trump's appeal. It is a purely personal relationship with his listeners. It is not based on factual issues. So let's tell a bit of a story. I mean, in an odd way, I think you've got to respect Huey Long, uh, though I also think you have to fear anyone who kind of takes office and is a one-man uber leader. That's a little scary for any democracy. Long is a lawyer from a small Louisiana town. And he's, he's just bristling with energy. He leaves law school early. He convinces them to give him a special oral exam so he can become a lawyer faster. Gets elected in 1918 to the Railroad Commission in Louisiana and began attacking the big railroads. He becomes the chairman of the Public Utilities Commission. Wins a big lawsuit with a telephone company that sent thousands of dollars back to Louisiana telephone users all throughout the state. And when the telephone company appealed, Long himself represents the state in the Supreme Court of the United States and wins. Got well known for that. Campaigns for a candidate for governor in 1920, Parker, then turns around and calls him a sellout and a scoundrel, runs for governor himself in 1924. He went hardcore populist, especially against Standard Oil and the bourgeois society in the capital at Baton Rouge. The Louisiana government, he said, and consider that he had just supported the governor four years ago, was an orgy of corporate dictation. Long would not hold back from attacks. When he was opposed by a certain judge in the state who happened to be deaf, he said, some people claim to be honest because they're deaf. He didn't care about being a gentleman. He said to a friend, I ignored the burglar's code among politicians. When he lost that 24 election, Long runs again in 1928, and he'd do something radical for politics at that time. He had a motorcade, his car and a few supporters' cars, but in the lead, there would be a truck with giant speakers playing music and announcing his arrival. And that truck would get to town early, drum up a crowd. Then there was one behind him playing music, announcing Huey Long, Huey Long for governor. And he would do this all across the state. And it's one of those things that it it must have been a sight if you were in a small rural town to see something like this all of a sudden, you know. And it's evidence to me that TV hasn't made politics more exciting, necessarily. It may have even flattened it. But back to Huey Long and Donald Trump, I think you're seeing some similarities here. See, the normal way to run in a state like Louisiana at the time we're talking about, the 1920s, Democrats totally control the state. You're only going to win in the Democratic primary. It's the only election that matters. It was to appeal to the party machine. And Long wasn't interested in that. Here's what he tells a friend. In every parish, there's a boss, usually the sheriff. If the local political boss had 40%, 40% were opposed to him. I'm going to go to every parish and cuss out the boss. That gives me 40%. 
and I'll house trade for the in-betweens. It certainly sounds like the Trump Twitter strategy, doesn't it? I mean, I could imagine if you had Twitter back then, a at real Huey Long, Sheriff Payne in Shreveport is a jerk. Hashtag, vote him out. He didn't have Twitter, of course. But there were other technologies. Radio was in his heyday. He did pretty well with that. Even in the rural South, there were many families who had sets, enough for that to be a benefit in getting his message out. Newspapers were still king in terms of media, and there were many that were controlled by his opposition. So what Huey Long does is start his own newspaper, The Progress. And the first issue has Huey Long compared to Moses and shows him handing out textbooks to children. The picture didn't exactly lie. That's something he would do because he would win that election in 28. He'd become a powerful governor. And on the positive side, he would build roads in Louisiana. This is a state that only had 300 miles of road at the end of the 1920s. And by the time of his death, you're going to get something like 10,000 roads between he as governor and his political machine. That's going to dramatically, and just to say, what's the big deal about roads? Well, this is going to dramatically cut the amount of time that trips take. It's going to cut the cost of doing business. It's going to save gasoline, maintenance cost on vehicles for the average person. You know, it's a big benefit. And he is going to deliver textbooks to schools across the, the state. He's going to improve the state university. He's going to set up a charity hospital system. He passes 14 amendments to the Louisiana state constitution overwhelmingly. And these are things like an income tax, getting rid of a poll tax. Some of the other southern states wouldn't get rid of poll taxes until the 1960s. Long does this. But he immediately starts running for Senate, wins in a landslide, gets to Washington as a senator. He's wearing pink shirts, sometimes does interviews with reporters in his pajamas, anything to get reporters. He'd march into the Senate and say, Fellow senators, you are among the unemployed and you do not know it. One of the comments is, some of the northern reporters couldn't believe that he would get space with the same gags that he pulled in Louisiana. But he got space nonetheless. Later, when he'd be asked about his share the wealth plan, someone said, well, how is this all going to work? You don't have to understand. Just shut your eyes and believe it. He was a difficult guy to work with, obviously, and uh, he supported Franklin Roosevelt. That can be overstated. You hear that now, long supported Roosevelt, but it was kind of more that he comes down to Warm Springs and then says, well, I'm supporting Roosevelt because I know he supports my redistribution of wealth plan. Roosevelt had made no statement of the kind. After the election, Long's taking credit for Roosevelt's victory, saying he carried North Dakota and several other Midwest states because he made speeches for Roosevelt. It didn't take long for things to get chippy between Huey Long and Roosevelt in 1933. FDR decides to undermine him by giving his enemies in Louisiana control of the federal patronage. Once he does that, it's over between Long and Roosevelt. So both Democrats, both considered in history very liberal people, totally against each other after the end of 1933. He starts issuing radio addresses, our growing calamity, our plundering government. Jim Farley, who was the postmaster general and head of patronage for FDR, a menace to clean government. You can see the same style in terms of Huey Long, what he was doing, and Donald Trump. And the hardcore difference between these two is that 
Huey Long was very much on the left, even if it was a kind of demagogue and perhaps leading to a dictator type of government, and Trump is on the right. Rather than attacking minority groups as a large part of his message, because you know, Huey Long did engage in some of that, but much less. And this was noted at the time, noted by black leaders in Louisiana at the time, that he was engaging in a lot less of the kind of race betting that would be part of any 1930s Southern campaign. The minorities that Long tended to attack were rich people, corporations, Baton Rouge society, bankers, the like. He insisted his programs were for all poor men, black or white. And he does incur criticism from the Klan because he's, his programs are opened up to everyone and he's employing black workers in the state highway program. He doesn't care. His book program is open to all schools. Now, at the same time, you know, he's a Southern politician in the 1930s. He's going to label opponents using race and he didn't make any special efforts when asked about the civil rights movement. He said, I ain't going to get into that fight. He also supported Haiti Carraway of Arkansas and campaigned for her and got her elected. Haiti Carraway was the wife of a senator who had died, ran in a special election in his stead. Nobody expected her to run for re-election, to really have a, a woman serving in her own right in the Senate. She decides she wants to run. Nobody in the Senate supports her. Nobody in Arkansas supports her. Huey Long comes up, campaigns for her, and you have a woman serving in the Senate, and she'd serve until the 1940s. We never got to see what it would have been like to have Long in the presidential race of 1936 because he was shot by a young doctor who was a part of a family of Long's opponents. That assassination ended his national campaign of share the wealth. We don't know how that would affect 36. I'm inclined to think not very much in real terms because Franklin Roosevelt won that 1936 election in an electoral landslide and voters were not yet ready to let in the GOP. But it was said that Huey Long had 7 million supporters across the nation. And this isn't just in Louisiana. This is all across the nation. He's got a lot of support in Pennsylvania, for instance. And there are share the wealth clubs all over the country. He could have caused some trouble, particularly, I think, if you had him continuously in 1935 and 1936 on the radio, in other places, undermining FDR and Jim Farley as corrupt, as ineffective pointing out in a way the Republican opponents on the right couldn't, that the Depression was still bad. At the same time, Franklin Roosevelt had a strategy for this. He was planning to steal some of Long's thunder, and he did. One of the reasons for an enhancement in the WPA program, in the Social Security program that was passed in thirty-five, was to combat the efforts of Long, of Father Coughlin. Let's look at Trump. I think it's in... Kind of the same zone of impact on an election right now. Uh, Washington Post poll recently has about 17% of Republicans who say they'll vote for Trump no matter what. And that's interesting because at the same time that he's getting that, and he has this kind of group that's enough to keep him leading a lot of the polls. He's got the 17% hardcore support, and then he's hoss trading for the rest, getting a, a few extra points and winning most of these polls so far. He's certainly incurring the wrath of the party, just like Long did, and the other candidates, just like Long did. You could say that Trump, with 17% of hardcore Republicans, it's anywhere from like 11 to 15 million supporters. On the very high side, maybe as high as 20 million. 
That's enough to cause some trouble, enough to light up Twitter, enough for people to get involved. If you make any kind of statement against Trump, you're going to see a lot of comments. It may be, depending how he handles it, enough to build an organization that's going to win caucuses in Iowa and win primaries in other states. He's got 5 million Twitter followers, about 200K more than uh, Hillary Clinton, though I suspect both have a lot of people who aren't really supporters, but are just interested in seeing what they say every day. So I see him right there. Can cause a lot of trouble in a really difficult scenario to imagine. Could even take that 17% and get the nomination. So many candidates in that GOP field, particularly Ben Carson, who keeps taking away this anywhere from 10 to 20% support for him. And that's denying support to the other candidates who are holding elective office who might have a more realistic chance of the nomination. I think in an odd way, Carson's been bolstering Trump. So we'll see what happens with that dynamic. It's going to probably take a few people getting out of the race for Trump to lose support. That's all for now. A reminder about that offer that we have. So www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Donate $25 or more, you get the archive, and you get the six-pack of transcripts. Still working on what will be a series of podcasts on Ronald Reagan. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.